the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show, and you can follow us, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft on Twitter, or at Dan Proft Show, either Twitter handle works, and... Uh, Welcome to another installment. Appreciate you joining us. We spent a lot of time last night pouring over the State of the Union address as well as the partial Iowa caucus results. But uh, there's some more takeaways. And upon another day of reflection on all of the stories that President Trump told during his State of the Union address, all of the Lenny Skutniks that were profiled, there are some themes that emerge as you have a little bit of time to reflect on it. And you think about all of the Americans and foreign nationals like Juan Guaido from Venezuela who were profiled, who were present. Rush Guaido, I mentioned, the 13-year-old kid who wants to be an astronaut, part of the Space Force, and his great-grandfather who is with him, who's a 100-year-old Tuskegee Airman. Sergeant First Class Townsend Williams reunited with his wife and kids. Stephanie and Janaya from Pennsylvania. Uh, Stephanie, the mom who wants to send her her daughter to a better school you can do that with a president trump's opportunity scholarships robin and her daughter ellie who uh, barely survived a premature birth and provided the opportunity for president trump to talk about uh, how life is a gift from god from conception to natural death Uh, jody jones who was there to honor the death of his brother rocky jones who was killed by a person in this country illegally ICE Chief Patrol Agent Raul Ortez and all the work that ICE Border Patrol have done to stem the flow of illegal immigration, provide some order to the border. The U.S. Army Task Force 814, named in honor of Kayla Muller, who was killed, an aid worker killed in the Middle East by uh, ISIS. Task Force 814 that took out al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader. Uh, So many stories there. But again, themes emerge. And I want to pick up on a couple, three of them. Because I I think uh, you just think about the the four cardinal virtues. At least I do. You try to live them. Temperance, fortitude, justice, prudence. And, uh, of course, they're all interconnected. There are a lot of stories about fortitude in pursuit of justice. And I think that's an important theme as the cardinal virtues are important, very common sense values that have been present since America's founding. I I think recalling the stories that exemplify those values is not only powerful, but it's aspirational, which is another uh, proper adjective for the speech, aspirational and optimistic. So let's start with uh, a non-American and Trump recognizing the true president of Venezuela in furtherance of uh, putting together U.S.-led diplomatic coalition 
to bring freedom to Central and South American countries who have languished under despotism. We are supporting the hopes of Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to restore democracy. The United States is leading a 59-nation diplomatic coalition against the socialist dictator of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. Maduro is an illegitimate ruler, a tyrant who brutalizes his people, but Maduro's grip on tyranny will be smashed and broken. Here this evening is a very brave man who carries with him the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of all Venezuelans. Joining us in the gallery is the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. And, uh, of course, received a standing ovation. Mentioned this last night in our discussions. Don't know what the Democrats were clapping for. Half of them, including some of their leading contenders for the presidential nomination, were praising Hugo Chavez, were uh, extolling the virtues of the so-called economic miracle that was uh, happening under allegedly happening under Chavez and then Maduro. And now where do we find Venezuela? Well, propped up by Russia and Iran, yes, but having more than four million of its people having fled to Colombia just to survive. And we've talked on uh, my morning show in Chicago to Venezuelans who are still there trying to get out, including one who writes regularly for Breitbart just to uh, give people a sense of the reality on the ground. Can't get out because he's got to care take care of his brother trying to get out. Two young Venezuelans, uh, college students, who are doing a college campus tour right now around America, trying to educate young people, the Bernie Bros and Sisses, about uh, the ravages of socialism, the implications of socialism, where the road that uh, Comrade Bernie and his fellow Bolsheviks would take this country if allowed to. This is an important moment, important moment. It also was a reminder that uh, President Trump is not the go-it-alone cowboy uh, fraying the uh, relationships that America enjoys the world over. Another caricature that's repeated against every Republican president by every Democrat apparatchik and they're amplified by their handmaids in the media. Turns out not to be true. Uh, Rocky Jones, fortitude and the rule of law. And what happens when you don't have the rule of law? What happens when you don't, don't meet out justice? President Trump talking about uh, sanctuary cities, counties, states, and uh, the real world implications Real human beings, real families, not just data. Here is just one tragic example. In December 2018, California police detained an illegal alien with five prior arrests, including convictions for robbery and assault. But as required by California's sanctuary law, local authorities released him. Days later, the criminal alien went on a gruesome spree of deadly violence. He viciously shot one man going about his daily work. He approached a woman sitting in her car and shot her in the arm and in the chest. He walked into a convenience store and wildly fired his weapon. He hijacked a truck and smashed into vehicles, critically injuring innocent victims. One of the victims is a terrible, terrible 
situation died 51-year-old American named Rocky Jones. Rocky was at a gas station when this vile criminal fired eight bullets at him from close range, murdering him in cold blood. Rocky left behind a devoted family, including his brothers, who loved him more than anything else in the world. One of his grieving brothers is here with us tonight. Jody, would you please stand? Jody, thank you. And Jody Jones tearing up when recognized by the President of the United States, just as uh, Kyla Muller, her dad, holding up her picture when recognized, when the Mullers were recognized by the President of the United States. And, and what is the position of the left on this? Again, values that are advanced by common sense realism. H- how do you defend that? You just dismiss it out of hand, the stories of Rocky Jones and Kate Steinle and so many more. There's a one of Denny McCann in Chicago. I know his brother very well. Killed by a person in this country illegally. Hit and run accident. Fled the country because Chicago is a sanctuary city. And even more importantly, Cook County is a sanctuary county. And there was no cooperation with federal law enforcement. What, what is the exact defense of that position? the dismissal of the interests of these families, regardless of that, whether they represent a small, the persons here illegally committing these violent crimes, not being uh, uh, held to account, regardless of whether that represents a small fraction of the people here illegally. A small fraction of a big number is a big problem, and it's a terrible tragedy that's visited upon these families unnecessarily. What is the defense? And then, of course, uh, a great moment, Last night uh, was the reuniting of Sergeant First Class Townsend Williams, who, uh, as Trump reported, was on his fourth deployment to the Middle East and Afghanistan until he wasn't. But, Amy, there is one more thing. Tonight we have a very special surprise. I am thrilled to inform you that your husband is back from deployment. He is here with us tonight, and we couldn't keep him waiting any longer. And that was a powerful moment. It's also a powerful symbol. Uh, another cardinal virtue, prudence. I said we're going to bring our troops home, and we're going to bring them home. This is the Dan Prop Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Two of the more inspirational and aspirational moments of President Trump's State of the Union speech yesterday involved young people. Uh, One was uh, about uh, Space Force and a 13-year-old gentleman who was there who wants to be an astronaut, Space Force cadet. In the gallery tonight, we have a young gentleman 
and what he wants so badly. 13 years old, Ian Lonfey. He's an eighth grader from Arizona. Ian, please stand up. Ian has always dreamed of going to space. He was the first in his class and among the youngest at an aviation academy. He aspires to go to the Air Force Academy, and then he has his eye on the Space Force. As Ian says, most people look up at space. I want to look down on the world. Yeah, that that wasn't it. Great grandpa who uh, has a... An interesting record of service to this country in his own right. But sitting behind Ian tonight is his greatest hero of them all. Charles McGee was born in Cleveland, Ohio, one century ago. Charles is one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the first black fighter pilots, and he also happens to be Ian's great-grandfather. I mean, that was awesome. It also recalled to me the Wall Street Journal editorial by another T- Tuskegee Airman named Harry Stewart last July 4th, whose birthday is July 4th. And last July 4th, he turned 95 years old. One of the things he said in that op-ed that he wrote about celebrating his birthday and our country's birthday is, my country wasn't always perfect. It wasn't perfect when I served. It's not perfect now. But it, I was happy to serve when I did, and I would do it all again. You know, love of country, the the idea of the promise of America that's contained in these stories, including those that were told uh, last night. So powerful. And uh, the other that's consistent with that theme is about school choice and uh, opportunity scholarships for kids that are in failing government schools. Stephanie is a single parent. She would do anything to give her daughter a better future. But last year, that future was put further out of reach when Pennsylvania's governor vetoed legislation to expand school choice to 50,000 children. Janiah and Stephanie are in the gallery. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here with your beautiful daughter. Thank you very much. But Janiah, I have some good news for you, because I am pleased to inform you that your long wait is over. I can proudly announce tonight that an opportunity scholarship has become available. It's going to you, and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice. And a lot more kids can do the same if uh, Congress moves on the president's $5 billion Education Freedom Scholarship Initiative. For more on uh, these topics and others, we're pleased to be joined by Jaron Smith. He's the deputy assistant to the president, deputy director of the Office of American Innovation Jaron, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan and Amy, thanks for having me. Well, uh, so those were, um, I thought, some powerful moments, but, it, uh, you know, consistent with the theme I was mentioning before about the uh, about what's possible in America, uh, about uh, aspirations that can be fulfilled and with some help from sensible public policy. And that's sort of the business you're in, too, at the Office of American Innovation. Tell us a little bit about your perspective and and the charge you have in the Office of, of Innovation, the Office of American Innovation, that uh, uh, folds into what the president was discussing last night. 
Uh, so the president's charged um, our team with working on the most challenging issues um, of our future, um, and that includes workforce or transforming um, our American cities, uh, um, specifically the most distressed communities. And so um, through the president's leadership, we were able to pass in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act um, opportunity zones, which uh, allows for uh, tax-deferred investments to be moved into the most distressed communities, 8,700 um, census tracts uh, throughout the country. Um, the president talked a little bit about that uh, last night, um, and, and, and we're showing uh, showing the progress of the zones. You know, two years ago, um, the, Tony, a veteran who was homeless and addicted to drugs, um, was able to secure a job because of uh, Opportunity Zones, and now he's thriving um, and, and getting a second chance at life. Um, and speaking of second chances, I also worked on, on behalf of the president to negotiate the first step back, and uh, that has led home over 2,500 um, individuals who uh, um, who were uh, uh, in jail for crack cocaine or powder cocaine discrepancies. Over 90% of those individuals are African-American, and uh, we're continuing to work with those demographics uh, and help them get second chances um, because at, at the end of the day, uh, the president is focused on, on the most forgotten communities and allowing for everyone to get a chance at the American dream. The president did it as a candidate in 2016. Are you basically asking uh, minority voters, hey, you know, in, in inner cities that where things are not going well, it's not safe. You don't have good schools for your kids. There's not a lot of job opportunities. You know, what have you got to lose? Give me a chance. And now he's proven up uh, in substantial form over the last three years. And he's continuing, though, on the theme. He's not saying, OK, we're, you know, wiping his hands and saying, OK, well, that's done now. Uh, and it wasn't just the speech last night, but importantly, the choice he made with a Super Bowl commercial featuring Alice Johnson. That's exactly right. Um, and, and he also posed a new question that, that many didn't cover when he was at an HBCU in South Carolina. He talked about what uh, African-American community has to gain. You know, uh, unlike uh, many politicians, um, he's not a, a president that uh, makes promises and don't keep them. Um, he has a historic record of keeping his promises. And I think if the African-American community or any community um, put their faith in this president, um, they'll see results like they've never seen before. Do you, do you think that uh, a real challenge for you and the work that you're doing, as you're describing, is getting people to uh, pull away from those that want to look at America's history and obsess about uh, our original sin of slavery, obsess about Jim Crow, rather than looking forward at the opportunities that are present for people today? You know what, when we talk about the forgotten communities, uh, these are communities that um, Republican or Democrat individuals haven't uh, connected and actually moved the needle forward. And so um, many times uh, showing up um, and listening um, and then presenting ideas or ladders of opportunity that weren't there before are very much welcomed. Um, and so I haven't uh, received that much um, outside of being here in Washington. I think um, all over the country, uh, most people want what, what every human being want, and that's a chance at the American dream, a, a chance to provide for their family. And uh, the president's focused on um, the American worker and their families, and his policies have been promoting opportunity for them. Uh, when you talk about things like uh, 400 different companies um, and, and, and over 15 million uh, workforce opportunities, um, uh, that, that's, that's just amazing. Um, and that's putting the people first um, and not just rhetoric, but actually creating that connectivity um, for opportunity, because we need that um, in order to be competitive in the 21st century. He is Jerron Smith. He's the deputy assistant to the president and deputy director of the Office of American Innovation. Jerron, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care.
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And we uh, just spoke with Jaron Smith from uh, the Office of Innovation, President's Office of Innovation, about uh, a couple of the... Uh, Important moments in last night's State of the Union address, including President Trump talking about opportunity scholarships and imploring Congress to greenlight his educational scholarship program, educational freedom scholarships, $5 billion worth. So, uh, as he said, no parent is forced to send their child to a failing government school. Uh, I want to pick up on that because there's a piece in Time magazine by Diane Ravitch, who's uh, uh, you know, been largely seen as an education reformer, was uh, open-minded on uh, competition at the K-12 through level some years ago, and then uh, she had an Alan Bloom closing of her mind. She writes in Time, The education reform movement that started with George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind law is dead. It died because every strategy it imposed on the nation's schools has failed, from Bush's No Child Left Behind to Obama's Race to the Top to Bill Gates' Common Core State Standards to Trump's push for school choice. The reformers have come up empty-handed. Those uh, four initiatives she rattled off there, do you know what uh, distinguishes one from the other three? One is based in competition the others are adventures in central planning bush's no child left behind obama's race to the top i mean it's race to the top grants you could say they were competitive it was a competitive grant program but it's a it's a competition among central planners you know who's the best central planner that's not a competitive model or that's not advancing the idea of a competitive environment in a particular sector and of course bill gates has common core standards trump's push for school choice is a model changer And here's how you change any system, any system. You change how the money flows and you change who gets to make spending decisions. You put it in the hands of individual actors that get to act in their interests as they define them, as opposed to funding centralized bureaucracies that dictate to individual actors what their interests are and what their choices are. Big difference. And Ravage sort of glosses over that. She goes back to, uh, she, I mean, she goes through these programs. But she also says, uh, she writes, reformers have historically called for more funding, better trained teachers, desegregation, smaller class sizes. That's, that's what a real reformer is. These other presidents and their plan, and, and Bill Gates and their plans, she calls them disruptors, not reformers. Reformers, more funding, of course, more money, better trained teachers, desegregation, smaller class sizes, desegregation. Well, how's that going with the central planners? Where are we at, Diane? More than six decades after uh, Brown v. Board of Education. Has that uh, separate but equal uh, shibboleth? Has that been relegated to the ash heap of history? Or is it in full blossom in a de facto way in big urban centers where de facto segregation is a reality? Do we have 
we discarded separate but equal? Have we realized the promise of Brown v. Board? No. And what is her solution? More money pumped through the same system. Hmm. Uh, She goes on to criticize uh, those areas where we have seen an introduction of competition into the system. And I'm talking specifically about uh, charter schools and schools that and and, uh, private scholarship programs that allow children to go to the school of their choice, be it public, private, or in some cases, even homeschooling. She suggests that uh, charters and opportunity scholarships have proven to be no improvement for the kids that have been able to access those choices. And when we come back, I'll address that, both in terms of her conclusion about the performance of alternative schools, charters, and scholarship-accepting private public schools, homeschool environments, as well as what she fundamentally gets wrong about the premise of K-12, through pre-K-12 through education. More on this topic on the Dan Prof Show when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Talking about uh, Diane Ravitch, uh, distinguishing between uh, real education reformers in this Time Magazine piece, those are the people that want to pour more money into the centrally planned K-12 through school systems in America versus just disruptors like President Trump advocating for school choice. School choice is just a disruptive a disruption. It's not, it's not a reform. She writes, test scores on the federally funded National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, the NAEP test, have been stagnant for the past decade. Scores of the lowest-ranked students declined. Well, that's funny, uh, Diane, because... Uh, Last decade, I mean, uh, per pupil spending on K through 12 education in this country doubled in real dollars, doubled between 1960 and 1980, doubled again between 1980 and 2010 and continues to go up at a 45 degree angle, particularly in urban centers where you have the highest concentration of uh, lowest ranked students. So what's happening? I guess we just haven't reached the threshold clearing per pupil expenditure level. Is that it? Right, which is, of course, the broken record of the central planner. She goes on, charter schools on average do not get higher test scores than public schools. And in some states like Ohio and Nevada, charters dominate the state's list of lowest performing schools. Some charter schools get high test scores, but they usually get high test scores by excluding students with disabilities and English learners or by high attrition rates. Vouchers in Louisiana, Ohio, Indiana, D.C. found that students in voucher schools, voucher studies of those areas, found students in voucher schools actually lost ground compared to their peers in public schools. This is not surprising since some voucher schools have uncertified teachers and are free to teach a curriculum that mixes facts and religious stories. <laughs> uncertified teachers. Yeah, the teacher certification is the uh, good housekeeping seal, right? 
This is why you can have a Nobel Prize in physics, but you can't teach physics at CP in the Chicago public school system, for example, without your teaching certificate, because that's the good housekeeping seal. That's the guarantor of proper instruction in the classroom. Milwaukee has had vouchers for religious schools for two decades and charters for three decades. All three sectors get the same poor results. Milwaukee is one of the lowest performing districts in the nation. There's a lot there, but let me just distill a couple of things. One is with respect to charters that are not performing well or private schools that are not performing well, right? That's what happens in a competitive environment. Who said anything of the sort and anything different than, uh, than, than that? Those who are proposing to change the system and apply the same competitive model that we use in another educational system. Perhaps Diane Ravitch has heard of it. It's called college. At the collegiate system, right, your Pell Grant, your Stafford loan, your GI Bill dollars, they're attached to you, and you can take them to Notre Dame, you can take them to University of Illinois, Harvard, Catholic University, wherever you want to go. Students, uh, schools, schools compete for the students and the money and the resources that are attached to those students. And we have the best collegiate system in the world, despite all of its cultural problems. Best collegiate system in the world. We have some of the worst public school systems in the Western Hemisphere. And the model is central planning. It's the CP, the Chicago public school model, which is one of the worst school systems in the Western Hemisphere, truly. A system that has, for generations, deprived the overwhelming majority of the children in it with even the opportunity to earn a quality education that would set them on a path to success in life. But we're just supposed to continue to pour more money into systems that spend significantly more, in most cases, than their suburban counterparts, for example. And we're to be unconcerned about the results because it's more money and certifications and the like that are going to be determinative. Uh, she's also wrong uh, on her characterization of opportunity scholarship programs. The D.C. voucher program, for example, uh, the, the results are mixed. But you're also getting a lot of kids after they have been wallowing in the public schools system, waiting for a life preserver to be thrown to them so they can have a better educational environment. The D.C. Uh, school, uh, the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program suggests that, yes, students who are Opportunity Scholarship students in D.C. are not necessarily doing any better ac- academically than their peers who were not given the same opportunity, not scholarship kids. But they're also not doing any worse. And the other thing is absenteeism is down. Nineteen percent of the students who used a voucher were chronically absent compared to 27 percent of non-voucher students. There's also greater satisfaction with the schools. Students who used a voucher scholarship more satisfied with their school. Seventy one percent of voucher users gave the school an A or B rating compared to 60 percent of the control group of students who lost the random lottery for vouchers in D.C. That's number one. And, and by the way, those metrics matter because you're on a path and uh, some of those benefits will not be realized immediately. It's not flipping a light switch, particularly with students who are coming into schools and they're behind with respect to, you know, grade level ability in particularly reading and math. In Milwaukee, she's just flat out wrong that there's no difference. In fact, uh, there was a good report by the Heartland Institute the summer of last year. The scholarship programs had proficiency rates 4.65% higher in uh, English language arts and 3.9% higher in math, respectively, than the Milwaukee public schools. So there is a difference. It's not massive, but it is incremental over time. You know, the the whole attitude about treating these matters as aggregates, you know, it's just aggregate data we're arguing about. 
rather than individual case studies of trying to find and provide a path to the best learning environment for each child. You know, the, the idea that, that we're supposed to sacrifice children on the pyre of some system rather than get as many as possible the life preservers they need so that we can bring them on board and enroll them in schools that are the best fits for them. And that, by the way, includes students with disabilities and the like. In point of fact, one of the most successful school choice programs in the country is a very narrowly tailored school choice program, scholarship program in Florida called the McKay Scholarships that are specifically targeted at special needs students and students with disabilities. And the parental satisfaction with the schools their kids are able to attend with those McKay scholarships versus the ones they were were forced to attend prior to the scholarships is exponentially different. Game changer. And I go back again. Explain to me, based on what's, what Diane Ravitch is saying, you know, uh, stagnant test scores and so on and so forth, kids being left behind. Why is it in every sector of the U.S. economy, every sector of our lives, we believe, because the results prove out, competition improves results and lowers costs. Better goods and services, lower costs, including in education at the collegiate level. But for some reason, pre-K through 12 is supposed to be exempt from competition, and we're supposed to just continue to shovel money into these centrally planned failures in most cases. How is that common sense reform, as Diane Ravitch suggested? What you need in places like Chicago and Detroit and Milwaukee and so many other communities around the country, is system change. System change, system change, system change. How do you change a system? I repeat, change how the money flows and who gets to make spending decisions. This is the Dan Proud The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And California was featured prominently in Trump's State of the Union address last night, mostly as the bad example, mostly as the real world incubator of terrible policy ideas that result in awful consequences. And so Gavin Newsom, the governor there, who's uh, busily uh, attempted to uh, destroy the gig economy in California through his uh, freelancer mandate, eliminating freelance work effectively, which is uh, causing a bit of a revolt in addition to all of the other systemic problems in California, financial, cultural, and otherwise public health related. Uh, He's got a new one. Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed halting physical fitness tests in California schools to study whether they encourage bullying and discrimination. Under the proposal, schools would drop physical fitness tests until at least 2024. So you have four years to study whether the test, physical fitness test, promotes body shaming or gender identity discrimination. There have been uh, complaints about the uh, tests uh, BMI, about the, 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 the BMI portion of the physical fitness test, that it's discriminatory to gender non-binary students. Why? How? Can you be in shape and also, you know, have one of these imaginary gender identities? The test is currently administered to students in 5th, 7th, and ninth grades. BMI screenings, of course, body mass index, height versus weight, or height in the context of weight, require students to select male and female 
Ah, there's the discrimination. During the suspension, the California Department of Education would consult with experts, experts, top men in the field, adaptive physical education, in the fields of fitness, adaptive physical education, gender identity, and students with disabilities regarding the purpose and the administration of the physical performance test. Given the body of research on the impacts of bullying on trans and special ed students during this period of suspension, it's important to take pause and determine whether the current test can be modified or whether a new assessment should be developed according to commissar that uh, is operating under the direction of Newsom. Uh, all this talk about uh, childhood obesity and what should be done about it, that's, this is a public health epidemic. A childhood diabetes, diet. Wasn't that what Michelle Obama was focused on? The taking control of our school lunchrooms with federal mandates? And now we're in the business of uh, not being able to uh, provide any sort of physical assessment that may be instructive for mom and dad at home. I'm not necessarily in the business of these sorts of mandates, but I mean, it's, you know, part of gym and exercise and those playing sports, uh, physical activity. That's good, right? It's good for kids, Uh, but it's not good for kids if it could lead to, you know, this catch all term called bullying. Let me tell you something. In order for kids to be mean to one another, they don't need your BMI results. Okay, they can size you up without the specific medical data. And uh, as everybody knows about kids, they will pick whatever is your weakness, whatever is the thing you're most insecure about and exploit it. It's about character and teaching people to be kind to one another and be respectful of one another, of course. But it's not always going to be the case. And then it's how do you teach kids to cope when it isn't. But that's not the California way. And that's why people are leaving that state like it's on fire. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump uh, starting his State of the Union address yesterday. Jobs are booming, incomes are soaring, poverty is plumbing, crime is falling, confidence is surging, and our country is thriving. And the future is bright. It was uh, optimistic in tone, and particularly with respect to the economy, there was much to be optimistic about as he went through some of the details. Since my election, we have created 7 million new jobs, 5 million more than government experts projected during the previous administration. Importantly, talking not just about jobs created, but connecting that to people no longer dependent on the government, people who have effectively got their lives back. In eight years under the last administration, over 300,000 working-age people dropped out of the workforce. In just three years of my administration, 3.5 million people, working-age people, have joined the workforce. And, of course, uh, providing the foundation for that economic revival is the energy sector. America is now energy independent, and energy jobs, like so many other elements of our country, are at a record high. And that energy independence, that booming energy sector, has uh, led to a robust manufacturing sector. We are doing numbers that no one would have thought possible just three years ago. Likewise, we are restoring our nation's manufacturing might, even though predictions were, as you all know, that this could never, ever be done. 
after losing 60,000 factories under the previous two administrations. America has now gained 12,000 new factories under my administration, with thousands upon thousands of plants and factories being planned or being built. Companies are not leaving. They are coming back to the USA. The fact is that everybody wants to be where the action is, and the United States of America is indeed the place where the action is. The USA is where the action is. For more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, who's always where the action is, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics, Inside the America First Plan to Revive Our Economy. Steve, thanks for being with us. Hi, Dad. So uh, give us your review of the president's remarks, particularly on uh, matters economic. Well, look, I mean, it was a well-deserved victory lap. (laughs) It was a very, very good speech. It was pretty easy speech to give because everything is going very well. It's hard to point to just about anything that's going wrong with the economy right now. We're firing on all cylinders. So uh, it was, was, uh, you know, morning again in America. And that was Ronald Reagan in 1984, running on that same kind of theme. I did think, in watching the speech, I, I have to say, I was so disgusted by the Democrats. It's been well remarked on that they acted like a bunch of spoiled kids that are rooting against America. They were sour pusses. The Democratic Party is a bunch of Debbie Downers. You know, their hatred, their deep-rooted hatred for Trump has them acting in ways that aren't even in their own self-interest. I mean, we saw that, obviously, with this, you know, the, the fiasco of the impeachment. But last night, it, it, you know, even Nancy Pelosi, she was like a nun raving her ruler, trying to get her own members to stop misbehaving. So uh, what is wrong with those people? Again, they act like kids. All kinds of things are wrong with them. One of the moments that was interesting, and this will be under-remarked upon just because there were so many great stories that were told, Juan Guaido from Venezuela, his presence in the gallery, and then the uh, standing ovation that he got from uh, all parties concerned. I thought it was fascinating. Wait a second. Why are you applauding Juan Guaido as the rightful president of Venezuela, Democrats? It's just a few years ago, including with respect to your leading candidate for the Democrat nomination for president, that you were talking about the Chavez-Maduro economic miracle in Venezuela. Yeah, that was very effective. You know, I thought it was very effective of Trump to do that because it really reminds people of the uh, idiocy of socialism. You know, and they, well, we don't want that socialism. We want the good socialism. I was like, <laughs> where, where's that? Show me where the good socialism is. Uh, so I thought that was highly effective. I loved one of the highlights of the speech for me, guys, was the uh, when he talked about school choice. And he had that uh, uh, young black woman with her, her young daughter and said, we're going to make sure that you can go to a good school uh, that is not dangerous and that teaches your kids uh, values that you want. And um, I, by the way, I love the fact he keeps calling them the government schools. He doesn't call them public schools. He calls them government schools. I love that. Yes. Yeah, they're government-run schools. That's been the big problem with our public school system. And, um, you know, it's this is the issue of our – I really believe this is the civil rights issue of our time. And Republicans have to drive this issue just as they need to do in cities like Chicago to say to, you know, minority parents – we're the ones who are for your kids' education. We want your kids to get the best education possible. It's the Democrats who care more about teachers' unions, and, and there's nowhere in the country where that's more true than in Chicago. Because, Dem- look, the, the teachers' unions run that town, right? And so I thought that was highly, highly effective. And it'll be interesting to see. You know, Trump really reached out to minorities 
in that in that speech in so many ways, whether it was the people he presented, whether it was the message of you know lowering unemployment rates for minorities, increasing incomes. And we will see how Trump does with the minority vote in 2020. But I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't shatter all records. Uh, it was it's interesting just talking about socialism, whether it's in Venezuela or in Chicago and in the school systems in general and big urban centers. This a survey out uh, uh, the other day from the NBC, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal survey on socialism. We focus a lot on, you know, Bernie's momentum and young people of the left being attracted to Bernie and the promise of free stuff. And that's what the Democratic Party is in the business of trying to outcompete one another to promise uh, goods and services that uh, somebody else is going to have to pay for. But but the, but in the general electorate, you know, pull back a little bit, get beyond the navel gazing of the Democrat socialists in the general electorate. Fifty two percent view capitalism positively. Just 19 percent said the same about socialism. They're basically well, negative. All, they're basically on. negative yeah. composites. So so this idea of framing 2020 as capitalism versus socialism has some real currency for Republicans. Right. Now, was that a poll of all voters or just Democratic? voters? No, 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 no. All voters and 40 percent. What were the numbers again? Fifty two percent viewed capitalism positively. Just 19 percent said the same about socialism. General electorate. The Democrat primary voters. Uh, 40% view socialism positively, but that's out of step with the rest of the country by a wide margin. Well, a couple of uh, points about that. Um, first of all, capitalism is what creates the wealth and the prosperity of our country. So I'm actually dismayed that only 52%. Now, maybe we, that that uh, that uh, term doesn't work anymore. Maybe yeah. we have to talk to free enterprise or something like that. But, you know, the fact that only half of Americans viewed that, you know, look, everything we have, ladies and gentlemen, the car you're driving in, the radio you're listening to, the computer I'm tapping on, everything we have is a result of the free market system. And it's not a result of, of redistribution and socialism. So uh, we've got to do better on that. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. Here we are. on This is uh, this is Wednesday. They had their uh, their caucus on Monday. You know, my line on this, by the way, you know, is, you know, this is very much like the Democrats because everyone's a winner. Right. And everybody gets a trophy. Yes, right. <laughs> Why declare a winner? <laughs> we believe everyone deserves a trophy just for showing up. <laughs> but, but, but I do take away from those survey results fewer than one in five Americans when you pull back and poll the entire electorate have a positive view of socialism. So those the supermajority of Americans are you want to whatever term you want to apply to capitalism, they're not being fooled by the term socialism. I, I think the Democrats are in big trouble. I think that uh, it would be a very, very positive thing for the country. Now look I'm biased because I do I work for Trump and, and I, I like the man a lot. I, but I think it's really important for the voters in two thousand twenty to totally repudiate this socialism higher taxes, income redistribution, radical climate change agenda of the left, and just say, you guys are completely out of touch with everyday Americans. Uh, and, and Trump, again, talked a lot about the middle class uh, last night. Look, not everything is perfect for the middle class, but you're seeing some nice, nice gains in terms of jobs and incomes. And, you know, the, the, the voters have to repudiate the Democrats because, the, you know, today in America, there's no way John F. Kennedy or even Bill Clinton could run as a Democrat. I mean, they are so. I mean, even Joe Biden is apparently too moderate for the for the Democratic Party today. I don't even know if uh, Barack Obama could run in this field today with some of the positions he took. And you know, 15 years ago, we thought Barack Obama was the most liberal person in the Congress. So the party has been taken over 
by a radical left, uh, and it ha- that has to be shut down. I don't say this with any joy, by the way. I, you know, look, by the way, did you hear anything about fiscal responsibility last night? No, I mean on the the spend side, uh, that was uh, yeah, that continues to be I mean, a, a problem. Yes, exactly. It was uh, it was not exactly the year of big government is over. Right? <laughs> if there's anything that dismayed me, it's like oh, we're going to spend money on this and that, and we're going to send a person to the Mars, and we're going to have the government spend more money on education and childcare and free you know, parental leave and all these things, you know, I'm not so sure I'm too wild about that message. He is Steve Moore, noted economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, and author of Trumponomics, Inside the America, First Plan to Revive Our Economy. Steve, thanks for joining us. And don't forget, guys, you ain't seen nothing yet. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, one of the cornerstones of a free society, private property rights. One of the features of most urban centers governed by central planners for the last 50 to 100 years, like the one I live in, Chicago, is the lack of respect for private property rights. Ever uh, expansive and uh, creative ways to insinuate yourself into the decisions made by property owners as to what to do with their property and uh, the consequences. Wealth destruction, flight, economic stagnation. Give you an example. Bloomberg reporting that last year sales of apartment buildings in New York City fell 36 percent and that money spent on those sales fell by 40 percent. The prices investors were paying for rent-stabilized units, where allowable rent increases are set by government, price controls, capped at around 1% to 2%. That fell by 7% a year. Yeah, well. Uh, there were uh, – it's not just the, the old rent control that we know something about with respect to New York City, but again, ever creative insinuations building on the regulatory body. Provisions in the state's 2019 rent regulations – make it much more difficult to pass along the costs of apartment renovations, such as adding a new oven or major capital improvements, such as a new roof. Can't pass those costs on the tenant. Much more difficult. The law also eliminated landlords' ability to deregulate, that is, charge market rates, for rent-stabilized apartments once rents reach certain levels. There are about 1 million rent-stabilized units in New York City. So in addition to a decline in sales and the price for those sales, there's about a million rent state. I mean, there's um, there's also landlords reporting uh, cutbacks on the money they're investing in the buildings that they do own. Of course, because you can't get an ROI. A January survey conducted by Community Housing Improvement Program, which is a trade association representing owners of rent stabilized buildings in New York, finds that 70 percent of building owners have cut their spending on apartment upgrades by more than 75 percent. Since the passage of the state's rent regulations, I mentioned, another 11 percent of the landlords in the survey have decreased their investments in their properties by 50 percent. So then the quality of the housing stock suffers on top of it. And that's not uh, the only the only uh, property regulations afoot in big cities. Uh, Seattle, Oakland have some others. And to help us uh, discuss those, pleased to be joined by Ethan Blevins 
who is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, doing a little bit of a survey starting in New York. Well, let's move uh, out to the West Coast since we've been on the East Coast. And in Oakland and Seattle, you have uh, ordinances imposed by the city councils there that would, for example, prohibit a landlord from inquiring about or considering an applicant's criminal history. That's that's both Oakland and Seattle. And in Seattle, you have another ordinance called uh, their first in time rule requiring landlords to set rental criteria in advance and then rent to the first person who qualifies. Uh, address uh, sort of both of those uh, ordinances in Seattle and, and the second one, including in Oakland, and uh, the implications for uh, private property rights as well as for uh, uh, private property ownership in those communities. Sure. So uh, as, as you say, um we at Pacific Legal Foundation challenged two Seattle ordinances, one banning criminal background checks, they're saying you have to rent to the first person who applies. Um, and as you might imagine, even though these are separate ordinances, they kind of work in conjunction to make a nightmare for landlords who um, can no longer make basic calls about who they want to work to, and they can't uh, impose a requirement that you not have a violent felony, for example, on record or something like that. And so as a result, any landlords just have no control really anymore over who lives on their property, and they can't get any information about those individuals' tasks that might be relevant to the safety, obviously, for other tenants, but also uh, relevant to creditworthiness. You know, if you have a high likelihood of getting rearrested from a fence or um, you have a history of, you know, vandalizing property, those, that's obviously directly relevant to a landlord's interest, and they can no longer consider that. And, and uh, as a result, and landlords are, are seeing the housing market, which, of course, worsens Seattle's current ongoing affordability crisis. And uh, at the same time, well, and just on, yeah, just on the, the, cr- the criminal uh, background aspect of it, I mean, wh- how does that take into consideration the uh, concerns of other tenants if it's a multifamily unit, for example, right? I mean, you have, could have a you have a, a mom and a and a daughter in the same unit as somebody who's a convicted sex offender because I can't ask about his criminal background or make any assessment about his ability to live here because of this ordinance, and and then it's the landlord that has potential legal exposure, not the city. If you remember, one uh, in the Chicago area not that long ago where a landlord is sued uh, for negligence because of the criminal acts of their tenants against their tenants. And uh, so there's a legal obligation, but there's obviously a moral obligation. Landlords want their tenants to be safe. Uh, they want to protect their, their interests. Um, and, and even more... Uh, in the scenario you posited, I and mean, this applies to situations where uh, units have roommates. So a landlord can't confirm that you know a, room, a roommate of their bed is going to be uh, somebody that's safe to live with, and uh, that in face of common sense and also violates the constitutional rights and landlords in Seattle. So, Ethan, uh, the other uh, ordinance in question in Seattle. Uh, that you're litigating is the so-called first-in-time rule that requires landlords to send rental criteria in advance, rent to the first person who walks in the door with an adequate application, and that just sounds like a very harmless 
uh, non-discriminatory, a very harmless non-discriminatory regulation. So what's wrong with that? Well, the big issue is that uh, landlords have a right to decide who they're going to allow to live on their property. This isn't, you know, somebody who's coming to buy a bagel from your shop, right, where you might have a public accommodations law that requires you to serve everybody. This is a long-term relationship with the landlords and entering into you, often an intimate one um, and, and a very serious one. So landlords have a right to have some choice over who that individual is. Um, you know, they can't anticipate every possible um, scenario with, when they write their rental criteria. And so they need to be able to vet applicants and decide who's a good fit. And you know, a lot like this also forbids landlords from giving somebody a break. So if they say in their written rental criteria you have to have a credit score of 700 and then somebody shows up with a credit score below that, but uh, the landlord feels sympathy for them or there are other mitigating factors, the landlord can't take that into account. Uh, they can't rent to the second or third person because they, they want to give that person a break. They just have to rent whoever shows up first. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, that it goes in both directions, you know, sort of the crowding out, but also the uh, making a, an exception to allow in, too. People are good-hearted. Uh, a lot of people are good-hearted by nature, too, and they want to give somebody a, a leg up if they feel like they're, uh, you know, a decent person just uh, struggling to uh, – just struggling for an opportunity. That's a very good point. He is Ethan Blevins. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. His uh, piece in the journal, I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Seattle and the state Supreme Court wage war on property rights. Ethan, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're always looking for canaries in the coal mine when it comes to uh, presidential elections, national elections. So here we are, uh, 10 months from the November 2020 election, doing the same thing. Uh, Democrats were hoping that a, a state House race in Texas in suburban Houston would be a bellwether for them. Didn't turn out that way with the Republican retaining that seat by a wider margin than Trump carried the district in 2016. Maybe the Lehigh Valley in the swing state, once again a swing state of Pennsylvania, uh, provides a focus, provides where we should be looking in a region we should be watching as the election nears. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Charles McElwee. He is a assistant editor of City Journal, and he's also a contributor to the American Conservative. The Pennsylvania Valley that became a bellwether for Trump is his piece at American Conservative at theamericanconservative.com. Charles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan, for having me on. Well, so tell us, uh, uh, listeners, a little bit about the Lehigh Valley and why this uh, is a, uh, a region to watch. So last night we saw the State of the Union address that Donald Trump's theme was the great American comeback. And it's hard to find a region that better exemplifies that comeback in the Lehigh Valley, which is in eastern Pennsylvania and comprised of Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton. Back in the 90s and 2000s, this region was just experiencing precipitous decline. It was once associated with Bethlehem Steel, which built our cities and our bridges, Mack Trucks, which was associated with the interstate highway system. Their trucks dominated our highways. But the region was experiencing industrial collapse, especially when Bethlehem Steel closed its steel mills back in 1995. 
fast forward to today, it's one of the fastest economically growing regions in the country with a $42 billion GDP. Allentown, which was falling apart, is now having $1 billion in investment in revitalization efforts in its downtown. The region is experiencing population growth even as other parts of Pennsylvania stagnate in population. It's hard to find a region, as I said, that is experiencing growth levels comparable to what we're seeing in this part of Pennsylvania, which I believe will prove very important in this battle of voting margins in November. Now, uh, so no more uh, dirges from Billy Joel about Allentown, at least not right now. That's uh, that's good news. Uh, it, but you, you and you mentioned, too, that it's it's a it's a renaissance there in those communities in eastern Pennsylvania. But uh, the, the, those communities have also changed over time. So it's not uh, it's not so sort of decidedly Trump country because there are demographic challenges that President Trump faces there. Exactly. Jim Carville is famous for saying that Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, Pittsburgh and Alabama in the middle. Right. He couldn't have been more incorrect about that in 1986. And he's even more incorrect about that now. It's a culturally fractious state, very complex with very different regions. The Lehigh Valley exemplifies that. So Allentown's resurgence in part is a consequence of geographical serendipity. It's in be- wedged between the New York metropolitan region and greater Philadelphia. As a result, it's a major logistics hub, the largest in the country, uh, and, and playing a major part in e-commerce across the East Coast. So as a result of this economic prosperity, it's bringing in more people, especially from Metro New York. People can no longer afford to live in North Jersey, New York City, Long Island, and they're relocating to the Lehigh Valley, where there are plenty of great jobs for professionals. So you have uh, large healthcare systems, universities. But in addition to that, for blue-collar workers, these burgeoning industries that are aligning all the highways in the area. But with that population change, it creates more confusion. So Northampton County, which is in the Lehigh Valley, that has proven mostly correct in every election since 1932. It's a big bellwether. And between 1988 and 2012, it always voted Democrat. In 2016, it went for Trump by nearly five points. So the point will be, will this region, especially Northampton County, reward Trump again? Because let's face it, a lot of these people from Metro New York, especially suburban moderate voters, are not trending Republican. If anything, they're trending Democrat. And we have seen this in elections post-2016 in that region. Susan Wilde is now a member of Congress, a Democrat who replaced Charlie Bentz, who was the longtime Republican in Congress. At the local level, Democrats are picking up seats. So as we look at a state that Trump won by just 44,000 votes, I believe the Lehigh Valley in November will prove consequential in determining who wins that battle of voting margins. Uh, when we come back with Charles McElwee, I want to uh, talk about a piece uh, in this uh, dove, this piece that you wrote about uh, Eastern Pennsylvania dovetails perfectly with a piece from uh, Angelo Cotavia uh, that he wrote in amgreatness.com about uh, lessons of 2016 that were not learned by elites and will not be learned in 2020 regardless of outcome and what that portends for our politics. More with Charles McElwee, assistant editor of City Journal and contributor to the American Conservative, right after this. Thanks. 
exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking with Charles McElwee, assistant editor of City Journal city-journal.org, and contributor to the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. We were talking about uh, eastern Pennsylvania, the Lehigh Valley, as a bellwether for Trump's re-election in November. And, uh, Charles, I wanted to get your reaction to this uh, piece by Angelo Cotavia, uh, professor, I think he's Professor Emeritus at Boston, uh, from Boston University now. But he, uh, he writes about uh, the revolution. The ruling class's intolerance of the 2016 election results was intolerance of us. They will not be chastened. They will not return to respecting us. Those who think that there are lessons they will learn from Trump's election or even re-election are wrong. Cotavia writing, our country is in a state of revolution irreversibly because society's most influential people have retreated into moral autarky, have ceded from America's constitutional order, and because they browbeat their sociopolitical adversaries instead of trying to persuade them. This, theirs is not a choice that can be reversed it's a change in the caricature of millions of people. The sooner conservatives realize that the republic established between 1776 and 1789 cannot return, the more fruitfully we will be able to, to manage the revolution's clear and present challenges to ourself. ourselves. How do we deal with a ruling class that insists on ruling elections and generally applicable rules notwithstanding because it regards us as lesser beings? Um, What's your, what's your reaction to uh, that rather stark uh, assessment by Cotavia? And if that's true, you know, how do we think about uh, the 2020 presidential election, the 2020 elections generally, and our politics going forward generally? He pointed out to what that was a dramatic divide, yes, between these prosperous metro regions and post-industrial regions that are either experiencing continued decline or somewhat of a comeback, like Lehigh Valley, the best example, uh, in the past few years, especially uh, post-Trump. So as Trump pointed out last night in the State of the Union address, this comeback is occurring, and it's resonating with a lot of working-class voters. They are experiencing what is considered a blue-collar bump. Challenges remain. People continue to struggle to make ends meet. Health care costs continue to eat more and more of paychecks. So it's indisputable that problems remain. But in general, people are happier in these region, regions than they were years ago. Ask any CDL driver in the Lehigh Valley. Ask anybody working in many of these warehouses in these regions. Wages are going up. So there is this disconnect between what's going on on the ground in these regions and then places like New York and Washington, especially those media circles that don't understand really how these voters think, despite years at this point that people realize that these voters prefer culturally conservative viewpoints and perhaps a moderate disposition on economics. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting, too. I mean, what you point up is reflected in the polling, right? I mean, President Trump has the highest approval numbers of any president when it comes to managing the economy, quote unquote, managing the economy. 
since George W. Bush right after 9-11. You know, I mean, and you couldn't have a period of more goodwill considering what our country had endured. So there's a sort of remarkable that this would be much of a question. But I think what Cotevilla is trying to to uh, delineate in the starkest of terms possible to shake people up is this idea that, hey, hey, uh, you know, this idea that uh, everybody is a solutionist and we just want sort of pragmatic, common sense realism. We want everyday problems addressed. Both sides want that. Uh, The elites want that, too. He's basically saying, no, they don't. And uh, that disconnect, even if you think there's some stratification in your region in eastern Pennsylvania, you have no appreciation for the real stratification in this country. And it's between the well-to-do and the somewhat well-to-do and the struggling to do well in Lehigh Valley and uh, these elites in control of our cultural institutions on the coasts. It's true. There's this remarkable realignment going on. And so, right, in these many of these regions, you have the clash between the well-to-do suburban voter who is fiscally conservative but socially liberal and supports policies oftentimes that in many cases where they, they don't suffer the consequences of the policies they support. Yeah. Um, Peggy Noonan had this brilliant column back in 2016 that pointed this out in the Wall Street Journal. And then you have people who live in these uh, struggling towns who are socially conservative, but perhaps economically moderate in the sense of they, their forebears believe in the promises of the New Deal, and their ancestors, members of their family, voted Democrat, but they are so removed from that party that they're turning to Republicans and Trump and Right. There, there, there's this great disconnect and culture clash occurring at the local level. And, and is your sense is your sense in a place like Lehigh Valley where there is going to be differences of opinions along those uh, along the spectrum on both the social as well as the economic issues, the moral and the economic issues that uh, right now, if Trump has you know just enough moments like he did last night where he is uh, substantive and scripted and disciplined, that uh, that, that that's where they're leaning uh, given the field as it's currently constituted on the other side, that they will, even if they have some personal concerns about Trump's uh, rhetorical choices and tweeting and the like, that that's where they're leaning? I think so. I, I, and I think, you know, last night was a disciplined speech. It was a great kickoff to his campaign in many ways. And, yes, I mean, th- these Trump voters, even those who may not have liked Trump but are realizing that this era is economically prosperous despite the polarization we see on social media and on TV, I think many people are frightened by the cultural polarization going on. And if anything, many of these regions that favor Trump, they want to be left alone. They're, they're, they're just dealing with their daily lives. They're supporting their families. They're paying their bills. They're, they're trying to keep up. And it also happens that things are starting to look up. So in some cases, this could just be 2016 all over again, but this time there's full employment. He is Charles McElwee's assistant editor of City Journal at the Manhattan Institute, city-journal.org, contributor to the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, where you can read his piece, which I'll tweet out, the Pennsylvania Valley that became a bellwether for Trump. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insight. Thank you.
more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And I just want to pick up, uh, extend the conversation a bit on this Angela Cotavia piece facing up to the revolution that we were just discussing with uh, Charles McElwee from City Journal. It it is really a uh, pessimistic, that's not to say inaccurate, assessment. I mean, Cotavia is a very interesting thinker, and I just want people to really take this in, what he's saying. Our country is in a state of revolution irreversibly because society's most influential people have ceded from America's constitutional order. They browbeat their socio-political adversaries instead of trying to persuade them, which was our conversation, which is uh, going to be part of our conversation, I should say, in the third hour. Browbeat rather than try to persuade. Theirs is a choice that cannot be changed. There has been a change in the character of millions of people. They regard those who are not them, as lesser beings. And an election result that snubs them isn't going to change them. He gives a, an interesting example of how powerful is the sway of the ruling class. And he uses Ju- uh, Chief Justice John Roberts in the impeachment trial, where he refused to read Rand Paul's question, right? We talked about that last week. And ran, as, as did Rand Paul, after posting the question and explaining what he meant by the question. Cotavia writes, the chief justice of the United States, freedom of speech's guardian in chief, gave no reason for declining to read Paul's question. The question was relevant to the proceedings. It violated no laws, no regulations. The names of the two persons were known to every member of the House and Senate, as well as to everyone around the globe who had followed news reports over the previous months. But the Democrat Party had been campaigning to drive from public discussion that this impeachment stemmed from the partisan collaboration between a CIA officer and a Democrat staffer, Misko and Chiramella. I'll say them if Roberts won't. That's who he's talking about. And Cotavia is right. Everybody knows. Why was Roberts pleased to please those he pleased and to displease those he displeased? In short, why did this impartial presiding officer act as a man partial to one side against the other? This professional judge could hardly have been impressed by the ruling class's chosen instrument, Adam Schiff, or by Schiff's superior regard for legal procedure. Is it possible Roberts favor the substance of the ruling class claim that neither President Trump nor any of his defenders have any right to focus public attention on the Biden's family Uh, Biden family's use of public office to obtain money in exchange for influence. That's what Washington's about. Could Roberts also love corruption so much as to help conceal it? No, concludes Cotavia. Roberts' professional and ethical instincts incline him the other way. Nevertheless, he sustained the ruling class's arbitrariness. Whose side did he take? His dinner companion's side? The media's? His wife's? Roberts's behavior, contrary as it was to his profession, to his morals and to his political provenance, shows how great is the ruling class's centripetal force. The sad but inescapable consequence of this force is that conservatives have no choice but to follow the partisan logic of revolution, fully conscious of the danger that partisanship can take us, can make us as ridiculously dishonest as Adam Schiff or CNN's talking heads into rank pullers like John Roberts, into profiteers as many as much as any member of the Biden family. Unlike our enemies, though, Cotavia writes, our ultimate objective is, as Lincoln said, peace among ourselves and with all nations. But what kind of peace we may get depends on the extent to which we may compel our enemies to leave us in peace. And for that, we must do unto them more and before they do unto us. Much to think about from Angelo Cotavia. 
from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. So we've got some Dem-splaining going on. Let's start with uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She explained why she tore up Trump's speech as he uh, left the dais. Madam Speaker, what did you think of Trump's speech tonight? I tore it up. I was trying to find one page. I would try to find one page of truth on it, and I couldn't. Good uh, reaction via Twitter on that topic from uh, Washington Examiner's Siraj Hesh. Uh, Hashmi. So Speaker Pelosi doesn't believe that Kaya Muller was uh, captive of ISIS and murdered by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Hell of a strategy here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that is just sort of difficult to refute, including uh, a lot of the economic data. Oh, and by the way, uh, estimate for January jobs numbers just out, 291,000 for January, which uh, is almost double the street estimate. So we'll see if that holds up on Friday. But uh, more bad news for Democrats. Uh, good job creation numbers. Uh, that's one Dem-splainer. The other Dem-splainer is uh, the uh, fourth, maybe fifth-place finisher in Iowa. His name is Joe Biden. He used to be somebody. Uh, and now he's on the Today Show trying to uh, run interference for Hunter Biden. Listen to this. Do you think it was wrong for him to take that position, no. knowing that it was really because but, that but company it, it, wanted access to you? Well, that's not true. You're saying things you do not know what you're talking about. No one said that. Who said that? Everyone. Would, don't Who you said think that? that? Don't you think that it's just Hunter one of those it. things where people think, well, that seems kind of sleazy. Why would he have that job if not for his who his father was? Because he's a very bright guy. I guess the question I'm kind of asking is, appearance. was it right? His appearance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he said he regretted having done it. Speak for himself. The grown man. So, uh, so I'm sorry, which is it again, Joe? Um, he uh, got it because he's a bright guy or he got it because his last name is Biden and you were vice president and that's why he regrets it. He, here's the thing about uh, I know Pelosi. Uh, I, I know from the, the Beltway media, Pelosi is a brilliant strategist, not since von Clausewitz. Have we been exposed to such a brilliant tactician? Um, and uh, Joe Biden, of course, uh, is uh, the uh, champion of the working man and woman. Uh, and he's also, you know, got a, a, a you know 40-year record of distinguished public service. These two are defenseless. It's like it's like a UFC fight where the guy is in the corner with his hands over his head and he's just getting pummeled right before the referee stops the fight. The firewall in South Carolina that's going to keep Joe in this race. Mm, We'll see. Momentum is a funny thing. And so is the lack thereof. Rich Lowry, he's the editor of National Review. He's a Fox News contributor and he's the author of the book, The Case for Nationalism. How it made us powerful, united, and free. Rich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So, Rich, what about? Uh, we'll start. Let's we'll start with Nancy Pelosi, since she's the woman of the hour, and uh, she just couldn't find any truth in Trump's State of the Union address. That's why she threw a tantrum. Yeah, well, the whole thing about Nancy Pelosi, she's probably supposedly this calm, cool, calculating presence who, whose genius is getting under Trump's skin, and she showed her deep irritation 
last night. That was an incredibly petty gesture. Now, I think Trump should have shook her hand at the beginning. I like Grace notes. Uh, but to stand there ripping up the, the speech, you know, she should have known this moment was going to come when she started to impeach Trump in the first place, that eventually he'd be acquitted or be near acquittal, and he'd be in this majestic setting, and she'd have to sit um, back there like a prop and uh, behave herself, and she and she couldn't handle it. It's a funny thing. When Trump goes conventional, it's unconventional, and, and so he gets the same rise out of them that he gets when he is, uh, you know, more boorish in his communication style, more pugilistic in his communication style. Not that he wasn't aggressive last night, but he was aggressive on the merits, not in an ad hominem way. It gets the same reaction. Yeah, well, there, there are certain things he just says that they can't stand, even if it's true. But <clears throat> obviously nothing he said is, is wrong. Um, they just don't want him to talk about that. Um, and look, I don't think Trump, you know, he shouldn't directly mention Obama. That, that's sort of a, a norm. All, all presidents and state of the unions, you, know, you, you don't do that. So that, that sort of stuff's not great. But they, they are driven crazy by them, by him. And they may have been driven crazy into, we'll see, you know, how it shakes out a little further into a, a real severe political mistake in this impeachment. If you just go by the Gallup poll and you can't take one poll, you got to average them out. But it's not just that Trump's approval rating is up to 49, the highest of his presidency. The, the uh, approval rating of the, the Democrats has dipped notably, and uh, the fortunes of the Republican Party has, uh, has gone up. So um, I, I've always thought the best way for Democrats to combat Trump is treat him like a normal Republican, say he's going to take you away from care, he cut taxes for the rich, and th- this is terrible, and not what, we, not what he campaigned on. Um, or something like that. But instead, they, they treat him as this incipient you know, fascist and, and go crazy and hysterical because of it. There's, uh, we had one listener uh, describe Trump this way after the State of the Union address and Nancy Pelosi's little snit, and I, I thought this was pr- pretty good. He, he's like human sodium pentothal. He, he brings out in people who they truly are in sort of a remarkable way. They can't even help themselves. And as you're describing Nancy Pelosi, this cool, calm, collected, dispassionate field general— but then she throws a temper tantrum and then she doubles down on explaining the temper tantrum in a way that uh, portrays her as venal and petty and about her, where you just had the president give a speech about you and this country and its future. And that's not a pretty good contra- That's not a very good contrast for the Democrats. Yeah. And, and just when, when people try to think they're reacting to Trump uh, in Trump in a Trumpian way, and that will really teach them and that really bring them down. It never works. You know, we saw this in the primary. It didn't work with Marco Rubio. Uh, it doesn't work standing up up there and ripping up his speech. So it wasn't a great night for her and not a great night. You know, I, I acknowledge Trump should have shook her hand. Trump, Trump shouldn't mention Obama. But like chanting from the floor that, you know, 10 years ago, it, the whole country was convulsed in outrage, at least the media, that, uh, you know, one Republican congressman shouted, you lie. N- now, I guess floor demonstrations are, are going to become the, the norm. <laughs> you know, we're going to have. Well, it seems like you, you may have uh, cults running into cults here. Uh, you have the would-be suffragettes and uh, the, the Bernie Sanders backbenchers. And then you have sort of everybody else that is scared to death of the prospect of a nominee named Bernie and despite the fact that the Iowa caucus fiasco blunts the importance of that caucus and its results, Bernie still is perhaps even more so the front runner going into New Hampshire than he was prior to Iowa. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a little tricky because I, I, maybe I'm a captive of my own expectations, but I thought Bernie could win this handily in Iowa. I thought he could win sort of going away five, seven points. And it's not clear he really turned out anyone 
beyond people who are already Bernie voters. But look, you know, he's he's going to looks like he's going to win both the popular vote measures. Who knows? He might inch ahead of, of Pete on the uh, delegates as well. And he's been strong in New Hampshire throughout. So he's clearly a front runner in New Hampshire. It's just I thought he he could take on the, a little bit of the aspect of a runaway train. So I think that scenario is a little less likely. Likely, but I mean the big story is is Biden, you know. And right. you guys are talking about it. He, he could still finish fifth, right? When he flamed out in '08, he finished fifth in Iowa. And this this he's supposedly the front runner here, and he still could finish fifth or just barely above fifth in Iowa. So you know he has a puncher's chance, you know, in Nevada and South Carolina to revive. I doubt he's doing it in New Hampshire. Uh, but if he doesn't, he's he could be out of this race by the end of the month. But uh, I mean, which is stunning. I, but but in in one respect and not stunning in another. I mean, you've watched this. We've all watched this guy for months and months now, and he just doesn't have the chops for this gig at this time. If he ever did, and I would argue he never did. I just watched the Clarence Thomas documentary, Created Equal, and going back thirty years to that uh, that Senate Judiciary Committee hearing that he chaired, that confirmation hearing. And the interchanges between him and Thomas. I mean, he didn't have the chops 30 years ago. It hasn't gotten better in the intervening three decades. But with respect to Bernie, the only thing I would push back on is to say this. Over the last three weeks, as Bernie was gathering steam, you had uh, Obama world and Clinton world flax come out. You've got people, you know, sound uh, moving the whole thing to DEFCON 5. And, you know, and that probably has some impact, particularly as people peel off of Joe Biden and decide where they want to go. Maybe Bernie is too dangerous. Maybe James Carville and David Axelrod and Rahm are right and so on and so forth. But I can't stomach Biden. But, you know, they can only hold that uh, line for so long if Bernie keeps uh, piling up victories and strong finishes in states where perhaps he's not expected to have a strong finish like South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally I think if you you're just given the percentages percentage odds of winning the nomination right now at this moment, you give Bernie the highest odds. Um, maybe not hugely, but the highest odds because he, he very well could win New Hampshire. That still seems likely or not. And then he could win Nevada. And then you know you, you have a near victory, uh, at least, maybe an actual victory in Iowa, and then and, and subsequent two victories. And then you know he's, a, he's in a real strong place. I think, still think he's going to have a problem in South Carolina, have a problem in the South. But on, on Super Tuesday, you know, in that scenario, he'd be the favorite in California. Um, so you'd have to favor him to go into a convention, at least with more delegates than anyone else. And whoever does that, even if it's short of a majority and the magic number you need, it's going to be really hard to take it away from him or her. He is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. segment where uh, we check in at these institutions of higher learning, most of which have become totalitarian re-education centers, uh, but uh, provocative uh, intellects on those campuses nonetheless, including Daniel Chambliss at Hamilton College, which is a private liberal arts college in uh, 
Clinton, New York. Go ahead, drop my course. Go ahead, drop my course, his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. He uh, writes about um, the best teaching advice he ever received came from a world-class swimming coach. He was the head coach of a local swim team. He was working with a 12-year-old girl who had uh, enormous talent, he writes. And he he was pushing her hard to make the uh, Eastern U.S. Championships. But this 12-year-old didn't seem to care so much about making the Eastern U.S. Championships or even necessarily swimming. Uh, And he tried everything he could to motivate her, including calling his friend Larry Leibowitz, who was a coach who he knew from uh, the sociological research he had done on Olympic gold medalists. He's a sociology professor at Hamilton College. He writes, uh, does Professor Chambliss, I explained my problem, waited for his sympathy and suggestions, but instead Larry surprised me. Dan, he said, you want this more than she does. Then he added, you've got to realize there's nothing morally wrong with not wanting to swim. So the, the sort of she, you want it more than she does. That's not unusual. Parent wanting something more than a kid, a coach wanting something more than one of his or her players. You've got to realize nothing morally wrong with not wanting to swim. It's such an interesting way to say it, and it struck Chambliss as well. And uh, he writes, I had always assumed swimming wasn't only important to me, but uniquely valuable to anyone who hopped in the pool. There's like a moral compunction to swimming if you uh, entered it. But maybe you try it out and you don't like it, and that's okay. He writes, here's a transformative message for coaches, parents, and teachers. There's nothing morally wrong with not wanting to work hard at something, even school, or not caring about formal education. In fact, there's nothing morally wrong with not liking school at all. Lots of people don't like sociology, the subject I teach. Lots of people don't want to, be, don't want to go to college. They get through life just fine. And yes, they're perfectly good human beings. He talks about the advice that he received from his friend, changing the way he thinks about education. It isn't the only worthwhile thing for young people to be doing. I mean, this is sort of right in uh, Mike Rowe's wheelhouse, huh? Dirty jobs. And But he, uh, he uh, goes on to say, does Professor Chambliss, how it changed his approach to students, too. When students come to me at midterm looking to drop my course, they're typically embarrassed. They stammer out some apologies or how they really do like the course. They think I'm great, but they've taken on too much and so on and so forth. He says, uh, Professor James, I just gently cut them off, sign the drop slip right away. If they want to talk to me, I'm delighted to listen to their thoughts about the course, me or their other priorities in life. I love sociology, he continues, and I believe in its value, just as I deeply believe in the value of liberal arts education. But when students don't like sociology, I let them know I'm not insulted. And this is a great line. You can't force motivation on a person. Uh, that door is locked from the inside. Motivation, a door locked from the inside. I really like that. As an aspiring basketball coach myself, I'm going to remember that one. Students aren't disrespecting me by not wanting to take my course, nor are they passing judgment on my field or my college. Yeah, why take it so personally? We should know by now that students have other things going on in their lives besides school. For some, it may simply be the wrong time to focus on education. More than that, we should know that when we respect students' choices, they're more likely to respect ours, and they may better respect the ideas that we want to share with them. But whether they do or don't is their choice. There's nothing morally wrong with not wanting to swim, and that's fine. And, and I don't think this is an endorsement of some uh, sort of carefree attitude about uh, being unproductive either. The way I read it is particularly the line about motivation being a door lock from the inside. You want to find uh, and help people find things that truly animate them and that they are excited to pursue, even though, of course, in life, there are things that you're going to have to do that you're not excited to. And that's part of uh, an education in coping as well and reality. But uh, it seems to me that, yes, you can make an argument for college. You can make an argument for liberal arts. You can make an argument for 
uh, all sorts of things. But if somebody doesn't want to, is unpersuaded by that argument, um, then you just sort of, if you're really trying to help them find their way, you present sort of the likely outcomes of the paths that you may be considering, the competing paths you may be considering, and or something to think about. As he said, you know, maybe sociology, this sociology class is not the right time for me to take it, or college is not the right time for me to go. Doesn't mean I necessarily that I can't come back to it. And so, yeah, sort of like talking through what fits a particular person's predilections and talents and uh, helping them to marry the two. It, 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 the whole thing, though, reminds me, too, of sort of the, sort of the pressing and ha- having people have to decide, make, make young people particularly make adult decisions and then live with the consequences of those decisions rather than trying to help them just make the decision you think they should make. That's a different thing, isn't it? And the best illustration of this that I think uh, that I thought of when I was reading this piece is John Wooden, also a great coach. I would say the greatest coach in organized sports in the history of America. John Wooden, 10 championships in 12 years, UCLA, that John Wooden. Well, there's a great story about John Wooden, who was really a teacher and a coach and a poet, too. Uh, the uh, story is during the Walton era, when Bill Walton was the standout uh, UCLA center. Uh, John Wooden had a strict rule on the team, no facial hair. And this is, you know, the hippy-dippy area, uh, era where you got beards and bandanas and long hair and the whole thing. So uh, one uh, time when UCLA was on break for a week, players were gone, no practice, come back to practice. And everybody knows the no facial hair policy. John Wooden sees Walton on the court, and he notices that he's grown a beard. And he asks Bill, uh, goes up to Bill Walton, says, you know, Bill, you know our rule with respect to facial hair. What's with the, uh, what's with the beard? And Bill Walton says, look, Coach, I, I understand, but this is really important to me. I- I'm making a political statement about uh, the Vietnam War, uh, you know, about the uh, peace and love and understanding movement. And this is just my way of expressing my affiliation with these ideas and those movements. And uh, John Wooden said, uh, no, I understand. And I, I understand. I, I think it's great that young people take a stand for something and think through these things. And if that's the decision you made, then uh, then that's fine. I respect it. And I just have to say one more thing, Bill. We're going to miss you on the team. Bill Walton was the best player in college basketball at the time on the best team and one of the best teams in college basketball history. And John Wooden was willing to say, hey, Bill, I respect your decision, but there are implications to that decision, and you're not going to be part of this team because this is the rule that everybody abides. Uh, subsequently, Bill Walton shaved. UCLA went, went on a couple more championships, and the rest is history. But the, the idea that, hey, you don't want to play basketball, my rules, is fine. There's nothing morally wrong with that. You're not motivated enough to abide the rules to be on this team. Okay. Uh, I appreciate, I respect the decision you're making, and I wish you luck. But there are consequences. This is the Dan Prof Show.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and who can keep up with the redefinition of words in the English language? Got another one. Uh, you know, tolerance now is supposed to be synonymous with acceptance, which is also synonymous with celebration. And uh, from this piece at uh, in Harper's Magazine, harpers.org, An Incoherent Truth by Thomas Chatterton Williams, I'm learning that uh, at least with respect to uh, the ideologically pure on the left, uh, coherence now is a synonym for adherence. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's a contributor to The New York Times, columnist for Harper's, and author of the book Self-Portrait in Black and White. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, this, uh, this piece is, uh, is uh, quite, quite stimulating. Uh, it's a response from you, a response by you to a, uh, a review of your book, Self-Portrait in Black and White, that was rather critical and uh, highly, uh, dare I say, intolerant of the idea that people can have um, complicated views of the world, that uh, we don't live in a Manichaean world, that there are shades of gray. This is something that's rejected by this uh, critic you addressed. That's right. Uh, uh, What kind of shocked me about the review of my book um, that this young writer published was not that he was disagreeing with the ideas within the book or that he was um, possibly identifying areas where I hadn't thought enough, but that he was, uh, his argument was based on the assumption that um, to st- the, the extent to which you stray from an ideology is the extent to which your thought becomes incoherent and no longer makes sense. And I think that's an extraordinarily dangerous um, way of perceiving the world, and it's something that we see um, coming from both sides of the political spectrum more and more these days. There's a kind of binary where you're either with the tribe, with the group, or you're um, or you're talking nonsense. And I think that it's important to push back on this, even when the people um, kind of promoting this way of thinking are more or less on your side. It's not just something to push back against when it's coming from from, from Donald Trump or from whoever the usual suspects uh, may be on the left. So I wrote this kind of defense of heterodoxy from from what I consider to be my, my position on the left, but but from a place of feeling distinctly ill at ease with some of the some of the more extreme uh, tendencies there. It, what is it that uh, is uh, confounding to those like uh, this critic of your book about uh, the position that safe just for example, to try and make it a little bit concrete, you know, there's an anti-establishment uh, uh, perspective that drives a lot of Bernie Sanders supporter, and there's an anti-establishment perspective that drives a lot of Trump supporters. Now, they don't necessarily agree on the policy ends that uh, would uh, consummate their anti-establishment perspective, but they're starting from a similar place, even though they want to uh, uh, arrive at a different destination. What, why is that? Uh, you know, why why is that so difficult to reconcile? Well, I don't think it ought to be. Um, I think that I think that there are um, many ways to arrive at, uh, at truthful or accurate observations, and I think it's clear that um, non-traditional candidates like Sanders and Trump have identified that there's something wrong in in the way the country's been doing business as usual. So I start from the premise that it's 
wise to to look as broadly as possible for for insight and wisdom and not to um, siphon yourself off and uh, silo yourself off in, in an echo chamber. You, you, you know, you use the word heterodoxy or heterodox, and of course this is the uh, the name of an academy that's been, that was founded by a number of sort of center-left academics, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Mark Lilla, mm-hmm. who you cite in your piece, and, and others. And um, uh, there seems to be more and more of that happening, uh, particularly on the center-left, uh, sort of mugged by the reality that uh, there is no tolerance for deviation from the established order as set forward by, um, uh, well, by the ideological left. I mean, that's right. One of the things that really struck me in this review, and which I quote, was the, the, the critics' um, position that uh, the, the opposite of, uh, of incoherence would be adherence, would be would be to be partisan. And I just, you know, and so he took me to task for citing, you know, thinkers across the political spectrum, uh, which I think is just common sense. So a place like Heterodox Academy, um, writers like Mark Lilla, and thinkers like John Haidt, those are, those are, those are um, inspirational spaces and people to me. And I think that uh, there is a kind of growing backlash that, um, how do I say it? a place like heterodox academy is a, is an organizing space for for a lot of us who feel homeless uh, on the ideological left if that makes sense yeah I, it does and I and when we come back I want to uh, talk about uh, something else I, I found um, uh, very insightful in your piece about the sort of what happens when there's only one ideal how that plays itself yeah. out uh, we'll talk more about that with Tom, Thomas Chatterton Williams contributor to New York Times and columnist for Harper's right after this Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Thomas Chatterton Williams. He's a contributor to the New York Times, columnist for Harper's, and author of the book Self Portrait in Black and White. And in uh, your response to one review, Thomas, you uh, you write, so long as there's only one ideal, whether it be social justice, wealth redistribution, anti-racism, uh, it, it, so long as only one ideal is the overarching objective, nothing will ever be too much in service of achieving that end. Uh, elaborate on what you're uh, conveying there. Well, I was thinking about... Um a proposal that, uh, that that a writer and thinker named Ibram X. Kendi um, published a few months back in Politico um, for a department of anti-racism. You know, of course I share the goal that we should try to move our society in a direction that gets past prejudice, bigotry, and, and, and puts all citizens on equal footing. But if that is the one and only ideal then you start to you you start to see suggestions for things like a government uh, an, a, a government agency like what he's suggesting that oversees um, every single policy for any um, evidence of racial inequity and then um, adjust it based on its own um, standards and in, internal um, guidelines and it just seems like a step towards um, a kind of a, a kind of tyranny that uh, that you cannot have in a free society. 
but you know but 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 who would who who would oppose anti-racism in principle i always try to start from the premise that there's no such thing as one objective ideal good and that there are many goods and sometimes there are contradictory and competing goods and so we always have to be these are in tension with each other we have we have to moderate our impulses and responses um yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And, 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 and so, you know, in, in the milieus in which you travel, why is it so uh, challenging? Uh, why is it um, uh, so uh, upsetting that you have to persuade people? If I, if I come to say, say, yeah, no, I, I, racism is a terrible thing and we should think about ways to advance a more tolerant society and to extend opportunity to people who've historically been discriminated against. I'm all for that. Why is it so difficult then to engage me as a conservative and have a conversation about what that looks like and persuade me to your point of view rather than, you know, try to come up with a government agency that just puts its boot, its boot on my neck like Mr. Zendi wants to do? Well, yeah, well, I think that, you know, persuasion is the only way that works in the long term. Um, so, I think that actually we live extraordinarily segregated lives and we live in ideological echo chambers, so we don't often engage each other. And I think that what we're losing is uh, the ability to um, make compelling arguments and to, to win the other side over. I think one of the things that really struck me about the tone and the kind of way that this review was written was that it, it didn't actually um, argue. It just uh, presupposed points and it presupposed an audience that with certain uh, – language and vocabulary, it would signal to its audience which side of the issue the writer was on. And then it's kind of a Twitter, um, <laughs> Twitter era criticism, you know, where you, there's no longer the, the need or the will to persuade. And I think this is a terrible mistake. I mean, you cannot legislate. There's limits to what you can legislate. I mean, today in the New York Times, there is a kind of astonishing article on um, on Prada, on the fashion brand Prada, which is one of these European um, mega brands that last year, in the past few years, has released um, racially what looks like racially insensitive uh, apparel or um, accessories. There were little figurines that looked like Sambo figurines, right? And um, this was brought in New York State to a committee on, um, I have to look up the, actually, the name of the committee. It's, if, you, if, if, we, if we're not live, I can tell you really, the New York City Commission on Human Rights. A uh, civil suit was brought before them, uh, and Prada now is um, being compelled by New York City and state to um, make even Mia Chia Prada and her husband the, you know, the, the, owners of this company undergo sensitivity training and all of their employees must report to this commission and well, I mean, the, the, uh, must show progress. I mean, this is, this, this seems to me extraordinary. I think that, you know, something like uh, racist figurines can be fixed, you know, through persuasion and through, you know, through the, the force of the marketplace. But, but, but this is the tendency now is to not debate, to not persuade, to not prove, but to compel. Well, right. I mean, this is a city where de Blasio advanced that ordinance uh, fines up to $250,000 if you use illegal immigrants or illegal alien in a hateful way. Well, I mean, well, who, who, determines, who, who determines which way you're using that phrase? I mean, in addition to all the First Amendment you know, problems with that. But I mean, just just the philosophy behind proposing such a thing is remarkable to me. And something else, too. And this was. Uh, somewhat prevalent at the State of the Union address, and I just, it prompted my question. Uh, 
prompted this question I'm about to ask, which is there are these moments where even people who are diametrically opposed and who don't particularly like each other very much, uh, their interests align. Uh, And so criminal justice reform, the first step act that the president signed with a lot of bipartisan support is an example of that. And yet it almost seems that there are elements, uh, the elements that we're discussing, that don't want those moments to occur. It's, it's, it's beyond them saying they can't occur. They're saying they shouldn't occur. Well, that's, act, that's right. That's on both sides. Um, but I, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed by this tendency. And, you know, you even see it in an internecine way. You can see it with, within the Democratic Party and the kind of center um, and the factions on the left and this kind of this 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 lack of desire even to find common ground. You can see it when AOC says um, that she shouldn't even be in the same party as Biden. You know, this, this is a kind of there's an extraordinary polarization that's happening between left and right, but even within um, the left and within the right. He is Thomas Chatterton Williams. He's a contributor to the New York Times a magazine, New York Times magazine, columnist for Harper's, author of the book Self-Portrait in Black and White. And I'll tweet out his piece at Harper's and Incoherent Truth. It's a really, really a thoughtful read. And I appreciate you coming on the show, Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thank you and good luck with the book. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Hey, don't you want to go down? Like some junkie cosmonaut. A million miles below their feet. A million miles, a million miles. I'll be with you, girl. Like being alone. Hey, 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 like being stoned. I'll be with you, girl. Like being alone. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And not since Ambrose's uh, The Devil's Dictionary have I read such a good piece as Lee Jussum's in uh, Quillette.com. Since we're in the business, as we were talking about with uh, Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams from uh, Harper's about redefining words, uh, you remember Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary, you know, true, the true definition of words, like, for example, politics, Bierce defined as a strife of interest masquerading as a contest of principles. Yeah. Well, Jessam has one really for our time, a full glossary here. Let me give you a few examples. These are really good. Bias, bias. (laughs) A bias for seeing biases. Often manifesting as either claiming bias when none exists, exaggerating biases that do exist, or overgeneralizing to large swaths of life from studies finding bias in some narrow or specific context. That is Beer's quality right there. All right, how about this one? Brexistential fear. An irrational fear that Brexit will lead to the end of the world as we know it. Brophobia, fear of men having a conversation among themselves. <laughs> uh, decontextophilia, an unhealthy attraction to quoting others out of context. Uh, I got a few more here. Emotional imperialism, the strange belief that your feelings should dictate someone else's behavior. 
Yes, I will tweet this out at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. This should be widely distributed. Here's a few more. Heterophobia, fear and prejudice against heterosexual men and women. IQophobia, fear of measuring intelligence because one believes that only Nazis and eugenicists do that. Istophobia, fear of being called an ist, racist, sexist, fascist, usually followed by self-censorship. How about this? You've heard of Occam's razor, you know, the simplest explanation that uh, contemplates the most variables. How about Occam's shoehorn? That's uh, what you use to fit the data to your narrative, no matter how difficult. (laughs) A quackademic, a person in academia who should not be allowed around students. Reductio ad Hitlerum, attributing ideas and arguments one opposes to Nazism, fascism, or white supremacy, also known uh, colloquially as Godwin's Law. All right, a few more here. These are really good. Really good. This is funny. This is funniest so, uh, social psychology professor in academia, Lee Jessam at Rutgers. All right, here, here we go. Uh, triggeritis inexplicableis. Outbursts and meltdowns in response to reading or hearing certain unwelcome words or ideas. Trollusions. A pathological tendency to see those who bluntly disagree with you as trolls. Wokademia, academic grievance grandstanding, and wokenibalism, wokenibalism, a low-carb, high-protein diet consisting mainly of eating your own. That is a perfect way to close out the hour and this show after our uh, previous conversations uh, with a a little humor that um, is great social commentary on a real truth. Thank you so much for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.